Douglas for another week with Professor Sullivan. Hello. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah? Did you have a good day? Yeah, I did. It was a little bit lazy. Yeah, it was kind of relaxed. I did was working l- on and off. A little work, a little a climbing. Little worked out. A little yeah. game. Played a board game, did a little exercise, did a little work here and there, had a big brunch. It was nice. Good weekend day. Kind of classic weekend day. Took care of a lot of household things, you know. Um did we? Yeah, I, did, I mean, did, I sent a lot of you emails. Did a lot of emails. I did a lot of emails to various contractors That's and true. professional service providers who. I guess I was thinking about the chore. The I did chore. very few chores. chores. Very so few chores. Not high on the chores. Anyway. All right. So Douglas. Douglas is the main uh, main event here. We've got covered this section of the text where Douglas goes. This is really where he is telling us a story of his freedom, I guess, how he gets his freedom, the first sort of, so we last time that we talked, yes. we got his, how he saw the direct pathway, remember, right. from knowledge, learning to read knowledge to, to freedom, freedom. bada bing, bada boom. I do, I remember that. So now he is further on the pathway. Okay. Okay. But not free yet. We, he will get there by the end. Right, but not but where, where you're beginning. starting. He is still unfree. Okay. Well, I don't. I mean, yes, he's definitely unfree. He's yeah. definitely still a slave. Okay, page one seventy. Tame and docile to a proverb. When well trained, the ox is the most sullen and intractable of animals. When but half broken to the yoke. Oh wait. Trained and docile to a proverb. When the ox, when well trained, 
Oh, I see. It's, right. it's but a the convoluted ox is most stolen and attractable of animals century. when but half broke into the yoke. Okay, mm-hmm. I got you. I got yeah. it now. Sorry, you're way out of context. Okay. It's, yes. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry okay. I couldn't quite figure out okay. how to get into it's this. It's fine. I got it. Now I'm, I'm on board. I now saw in my situation several points of similarity with that of the oxen. They were property. So was I. They were to be broken. So was I. Covey was to break me. I was to break them. Break and be broken. Such is life. Yeah, and so, um, I mean, Douglas made this point previously in the last section over and over again, this kind of uh, equation of... Perpetuating violence, raining it on someone else. Yeah, in this way, I mean, he's even bringing it further down in the way that, um, you know, slaves are treated, are really animals, right? Or are right. treated and expect, and are, are That's treated. That's what he says, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you, I mean, do you even remember talking about Frederick Douglass last week? I mean, lots happened since then. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Does it connect to anything that you uh, remember talking about? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, it's okay. I mean, uh, I've never really asked you to to pull a week's, you know, memories. Yeah, I so. don't know that I can draw. Uh, I mean, I guess like I thought the connection was should make my students feel good. I thought that the connection was that the the like abuse of the, but maybe we didn't even talk about that we in did? the podcast. Yeah, the like the abuse that gets passed, mm-hmm. which yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the connection that I made. I don't know if I make. I mean, Covey, I guess, also, is he the master or he's, like, one of the, like, middlemen or whatever? So so Douglas is owned by Thomas Auld at this point. Right. So this is, like, he's, like, also a middleman. You know, so, like, this is also that kind of, like, structures of power kind of thing. We talked about that. Yeah, it's another another, uh, component. I mean, we don't see any picture of the – I didn't give them the chapters where where he talks about how he ends up with Covey. Um, it's, I just meant that we had talked about these power structures where there was like these indirect, you know, kind of author- like authorities, but they didn't have authority, you know, sort of their authority only went so far and then didn't, they weren't invited to dinner at the other house. or whatever. Right, right. A complex, like a complex series of social relations right. whose ultimate end is docility of right. like... A laboring body, right, right. So I guess those are all the connections I can draw. From the, last it's good. Week. It's good, right? Um, but I mean that <laughs> that that covers a lot, right? The that you you know Douglas here in this moment as he's driving the oxen around Covey's property mm-hmm. has this sort of sociological insight about the nested social relations that are intended to discipline bodies to do agricultural labor. Mm-hmm. And he is embedded in this in complex ways, right? Both uh, upward and downward. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, his embeddedness doesn't seem super complex to me. He seems to equate himself both to the ox, right? Like I am basically yes, not much higher than this ox, but then I break the ox. It gets, it, it will become, sli- uh, the complexity of his social, I mean, Complexity may be the wrong word, but the full complexity of the social relations will become sure. clearer in, in just a little bit. Yeah, I guess it's not that I thought I had like brought from last week that the social relations were complicated, but that in this one I feel like it's like pretty clear cut that like Covey in this instance is sort of on top of Yes, absolutely. Douglas and his ox, you know. Like, yes. Yes, and you should know that as Douglas did when he was um, sort of sent out to Covey's farm, that Covey was known as a kind of a slave breaker. Gotcha. That was sort of his reputation gotcha. was that he took these intractable slaves. Gotcha. Right. And he whipped them into shape. Okay. Okay. Now, but Douglas wasn't seen as an intractable slave. He had learned to read. So this was post-learning to read. He was, like, moved over here to, to, like... Covey, yeah. So he's around... He's a teenager at this point, like a late adolescent at this point. Oh, so he's young. He's very young. Yeah, he's very young. We should assume... (sighs) I think that Douglas is probably not yet 20. 
He's okay. probably a teenager. He's I maybe was 16. Not, I was not imagining that uh, that he was that young. So, He's maybe yeah. 16 in this particular instance okay. with Covey. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, he is then, in a certain regard, thinking, this isn't like his, ad- I mean, I guess in this instance it is his adult self reflecting on what a 16-year-old self was thinking or whatever, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to move on. All right. Page 173. Mean and contemptible as is all this, it is in keeping with the character which the life of a slaveholder is calculated to produce. There is no earthly inducement in the slave's condition to incite him to labor faithfully. The fear of punishment is the sole motive for any sort of industry with him. Knowing this fact, as the slaveholder does, and judging the slave by himself, he naturally concludes the slave will be idle whenever the cause for this fear is absent. Hence, all sorts of petty deceptions are practiced to inspire this fear. Yeah, he spends several pages describing Covey's kind of sneaky behavior. Like he mm-hmm. always call, he always like calls Covey like a snake. Sometimes maybe call, maybe calls him like a rat or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. else that like Covey's always like sneaking up on him. Uh-huh. Like uh-huh. like where when they least expect it, he'll walk into the barn and like right. Popping. Cubby pops like <laughs> yeah. right behind him. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it would be it's comical if it wasn't so depressing. Yeah, and I mean, there is a certain there is a certain cinematic quality to some of the descriptions. Right, that, I right. mean, in a very nineteenth century way, but there is like a very uh-huh. there are some very vivid descriptions of of these moments that you do kind of imagine some sort of gothic uh-huh. horror movie or something, right? <laughs> you know, of like Covey there with the cat of nine tails and stuff. You know, yeah. I mean, it's a it's it's rather dark. Yeah, um, <clears throat> but there, I think it's another. It's just <clears throat> another theme that Douglas keeps circling back to, which is about that it, it the slaveholders are correctly suspicious, right? They right. are correctly sure, suspicious yeah, yeah. that the slaves will not be working. Right. Um, and are, you know, and this is the part that I was talking about in class last week, and we talked a little bit about uh, at the end of our conversation uh, a week ago, you and me about, you know, the ways that Douglas thinks of the slave system as corrupting everyone, right? Right. And so we saw, you know, uh, Mrs. Auld last week. And here, though, we see just another instance of, like, every person who is close to this becomes, right. you know, somehow sucked into its sort of right, toxic right. whirlpool in different ways. But they all center around this, like, intense suspicion or this, Well, like, it's like a society that's set up nearly entirely on force like on repression Uh uh right and so if you have that you know it requires this kind of uh i mean i don't know i keep just keep thinking of this barrington moore chapter but the the sort of like sense where some of it has to be kind of like unpredictable like some stuff you do want to be predictable Mm -hmm. but like Mm -hmm. that this sort of sense of like having people actually still conform to the fear Mm -hmm. when especially is that it has to be like so egregious and so unpredictable as to have Mm -hmm. people right they're like popping in but then like pop in and then you know like beat the ever-living shit out of someone so that like it's not just like we might be around the corner but like he might be around the corner and who the fuck knows what he's gonna Mm -hmm. do right Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. so that there's this kind of you know element of that the you might get this disproportionate punishment you know for and it would be warping oh uh, yeah you know for everyone but including for the person who is doing that kind of yeah yeah i mean some of those people in the you know holocaust example just seem like you know like soulless cruel like you know yeah I'm sure in this too. I just it was. I have. I can imagine these. Like it brings to mind these stories from mm-hmm. that about sort of some of these incidents where you're just like, oh my god. Anyway, yeah. So corrupting for sure. And yeah, I mean, I've always been. So I mean, I just want to sort of put on the table here. You and I have probably talked about this from time to time, but I have always been skeptical of these kinds of arguments. However, like I, I mean, I know that they are. Which kind? 
the kind that, oh, slavery was just as bad for the slaveholders as it was for the oh, slaves. Yes, or, yes, oh, yes, 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 right. Yes. I mean, yes. now Douglas never says it exactly like equal. Right. 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 But right. there is a part of me that always wants to tread carefully around these well, kinds of claims. Well, I think when we make, I mean, we, I'm not making that claim, but I think when those rhetorical claims are made, I think, you know, it is, again, this, like, call to someone else's kind of, it's like you're, you're, I think it is an attempt to get other people on board with your program who might not otherwise be on board with your program. That said, I also think that even if we were going to take it at its face, mm -hmm. it's, like, definitely a different kind of bad for the sure. people on top sure. than the people on that are experiencing sure, sure. the repression. Toxic of masculinity whatever, like, is different from right, like, growing up in a misogynistic culture. Right, right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we could certainly, I think, honestly argue that this is bad for both mm -hmm. sides. But, like, what that bad for both sides looks like and means is very, is mm -hmm. not like, it's just not the same. And so, sort of how you want to. Yeah. Think about that, right? I mean, I think we could sort of imagine like someone being this, like doing these horrifying things as that being bad for that person, but it's bad in a very different way than if you're, you know, raped and separated from your children and mm -hmm. beaten and like, you know, right? I mean, this is like a different variety of bad injury, of right? Injury. A yeah. moral injury might be different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And one that is like kind of on you. Right, you could, you you could, could do something else. Choose something else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in some cases, choosing something else might put you also at risk of certain repressive things. So you're still maybe in those repressive structures that are hard to escape from. But you do have more choice than, you know, as you go down the line right. in that social structure of people being repressed. Right. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. I, I, that's all I want to sort of, uh, when we get close to these arguments that Douglas was, I mean, Douglas was making these arguments, I think, for, uh, I mean, I think he's, not, again, like you said, he's not wrong that there are moral consequences right. to being an asshole, right? Like, I mean, and, and beyond being, being an asshole, right? Yeah, sorry, yeah, 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 beyond being like, I mean, there, I mean, there are, are moral, moral consequences, consequences to being an asshole. asshole. There are moral consequences. <laughs> <laughs> there are also moral consequences to you know perpetuating a system of like violence and systemic violence and dehumanization and you know. And there are you know th those do warp your warp your soul, uh, and so Douglas is not wrong when he's making those claims, and Douglas is making them right. He's he's making these. Um, claims to in his early in the early part of his career, right? I mean, he's in abolition uh, groups, abolitionist groups that are primarily organized through religious organizations, right? And Which so, I mean, there I think that like I was going to say this earlier, and I didn't, but that part where I mean, if you think that the ultimate punishment is like the mm -hmm. hellfire or you know like whatever that then this is also going to shift i think a little bit how you might well understand. in this sense in this sense from a, a purely religious perspective right. it, it is plausible yeah for one to hold within within a comprehensive doctrine Correct. of yeah. religion it is possible to hold that the slaveholder is more wounded yeah. right. than the slave right right i mean that is a possibility yeah and and I think it does. I think it points to another thing that you're going to love because it's going. I'm going to come right back to that Barrington Moore thing, which uh -huh. my students haven't read, but it's okay. <laughs> well, maybe um, some of them. I don't know. I don't know if I had any of them in comparison. It, but is the way in which this is regularly a feature of oppressed people's self understanding and presentation to the world at large is of moral superiority. Right. 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 This is this is not an uncommon feature of of how people sort of deal with and conceptualize their own oppression. Right. Right. All right. So, so that, that could get really rich. I mean, that stuff, this, that whole set of Douglas's arguments is just super rich. Yeah, I believe it. Um, all right. All right. 174. 
The first condition of wealth and respectability there being the ownership of human property. Every nerve is strained by the poor man to obtain it, and very little regard is had to the manner of obtaining it. Okay. So here he is described, basically he's he's kind of saying that the reason Covey mm-hmm. is such a harsh master is that he's he's probably actually too poor to really own slaves. Right. Yeah. Or he was too poor when he got his first slave. Right. He's a striver. Yeah. No, that's and, clear. I get and that. And compared to someone like Lloyd, the first plantation. Right, right. Whose first plantation he worked on, it's a dump. Right. Coveys. Right. Right. And, and, um, yeah. And that, I mean, I think it's, I think that's one more aspect of Dubois, I'm sorry, Douglas's, um, Douglas's analysis of the the systemic consequences of the slave system, right? Is that like if you are a poor person in mm-hmm. a slave society, you strive super hard so that you can like show off that you're just as you know you've right. got like yeah, that you yeah. work super hard to then like implicate yourself right. in this morally corrupting thing. So like right. you're busting your ass. So that then you can now become morally warped right. by this, right? So yes. it's just one more sort of way that I think that he's deepening in the sense that you were talking about, like, well, yes, you have a choice. Part of what du- Douglas is saying here um, is that the is that the whole society is structured around this being the the core element of white respectability, right? Right. So, yeah. All right. Jumping ahead here a bit. Page 187. My master, who I did not venture to hope would protect me as a man, had even now refused to protect me as his property and had cast me back, covered with reproaches and bruises, into the hands of a stranger to that mercy which was the soul of the religion he professed. So Douglas has been beaten mercilessly by Covey after collapsing... Did you hear that noise upstairs? I did. I wonder if someone knocked something off her table. Probably. Um, if she comes down, then we'll, we'll have, to, have pause to pause and pick it back up. <laughs> so Douglas has been beaten mercilessly by Covey after passing out from sunstroke uh, doing some agricultural labor. Okay. And then Douglas flees into the woods, walks through the woods seven miles to his master's shop in St. Michael's, Maryland. Okay. And pleads with his master, the, his owner, uh-huh. to, you know, take him out help of him coveys. out. Yeah. yeah, take him out of coveys, help him out some way. And he he describes in in pretty lurid detail the kind of um moral and psychic acrobatics that his master goes through to just avoid taking a moral stand, right? Right. Like, like he really shows, I mean, he, he provides, again, this very vivid 19th century right. portrait of someone capitulating to moral cowardice. Right. Right. And for Douglas, this is, this is the, the message, right? That like, Right. He's and not he even actually... He ends, there's even another line here, that may the reader never spend such a night as that allotted to me. Previous to the morning, which was to herald my return to the den of horrors from which I had made my, a temporary escape. Right, right. Yeah, great 19th century mm-hmm. stuff there, you know. Yeah. Um, and and I think this part where Douglas sort of recognizes... I, I, I don't know. There's a part there where he recognizes that he's not protected neither as a human yeah, being nor as, as property, property that I think for Douglas is this moment of, of a really grim realization of just how twisted right. his situation is. Right. That like, right. That the expendability of even of his, of him, of right. the property that he represents. Right. Right. Well, and then a critique on the religious grounds of like, you say that you mm-hmm. have this religion and mercy is important, and then you like act like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you hypocrite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just goes right back to that. 
point that we were saying a second ago that within yeah. the con within the constraints of this particular set of religious doctrines, you can easily see how yeah the moral injury really is stronger for the right. slaveholder. All right, page 197 and 198. I was no longer a servile coward trembling under the... Oh, he's beaten Covey up. Sorry. Okay. So you should know that he returns. Okay. And he... There's a... There's a great scene. I didn't paint... I didn't get any scenes where he is... I mean, these are like so... Our, our editor of the volume, mm -hmm. I think, does a nice job of letting us take Douglas at his word... Uh -huh. While occasionally interjecting the ways in which we might uh, sort of occasionally calling attention to the possibly artificial okay. components of the ways that Douglas is a great storyteller, let's okay. say. Okay, yeah, sure. And um, Come from a family of storytellers. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I mean, all of this is certainly, like, we're not saying Douglas is making shit up here, just the... the the, the story has a certain right. quality to it that makes a very nice 19th century story right. wherein here he is nearly he, he is he's on the edge of Covey's farm and he's passed out and he's sleeping and he's unsure what to do next and so he's going to wait till morning and kind of sleep on it and this he hears a rustle in the woods and he's very afraid so he's just going to stay stock still and try to cover himself with leaves and then lo and behold it's this well-known slave named Sandy who's going to visit his wife who has a shack in the woods. And Sandy sees him. They recognize one another. Sandy offers him mercy. Uh -huh. Sandy takes him to his wife's shack. They serve him, you know, uh, the, they serve him food. And Sandy gives him wise counsel mm -hmm. and tells him, you know, what you got to do is, you know, you got to just pretend like nothing ever happened. Mm -hmm. And Sandy says, I'm going to give you these special magic roots. Um, Douglas is like, Sandy was really an African. And so he had some kind of folk religion, right? Okay, yeah. I, I don't know why he goes into that, but <laughs> okay. there he does. And he says, you know, I didn't know what to make of it, but when Sandy told me, I thought that Sandy was just being superstitious. But then when Sandy told me that thing about how I just have to tr to walk into the the Covey's farm like like nothing had ever happened, I thought that was pretty smart, so I thought I'd trust him with these roots, too. And so Sandy told me the roots. This is what Douglas said. Sandy told me the roots, if I put them in my right pocket, Covey couldn't hit me. So he says, all right, I'll try it with those roots. And so he, so Sandy gave him the roots. Douglas put them in his pocket. Douglas walks back in. It's Sunday, and Covey mm -hmm. refuses. Covey puts on a a a, a very kind face as well because he and the wife and kids are going to church and so right. Covey's just puts on this whole right. Sunday morning face but come Monday Covey's ready uh -huh. okay but so is Douglas so is Douglas and so Douglas right. describes so this, this fight that he has with Covey that lasts basically all day I mean here's okay. another part where you're like I mean whatever sure it makes for a good story but that like you know Douglas tells this story about how he has how he's been tussling with Covey all day long. Like uh -huh. they've been locked in a kind of <laughs> wrestling match or something. It gets uh -huh. very, it uh -huh. gets a little, it gets frankly a little macho. Uh -huh. um, sure. All right. I want to read it. All right. 197 and 98. I was no longer a servile coward, trembling under the frown of a brother worm of the dust. That's right. Brother worm of the dust. Brother worm of the dust. Trembling under the frown of a brother worm of the dust, but my long cowed spirit was roused to an attitude of manly independence. Mm -hmm. I had reached the point at which I was not afraid to die. This spirit made me a freeman, in fact, while I remained a slave in form. When a slave cannot be flogged, he is more than half free. He has a domain as broad as his own manly heart to defend, and he is really power on earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, so he fights back. He fights back, and I mean, I think there is truth to this claim of like, if you if people lose fear of the repression, mm -hmm. or don't lose fear, but just are like, fuck it, I would rather act and risk death. 
Like, right. That is like very dangerous for the repressive, you know, structures. You'd right. rather act and risk death. So with the risk of completely scooping everything that I'm going to talk about this week with the students. Yes. This scene that we just described and this removal of the fear of repression, does that have anything to do with learning Knowledge? to read? <laughs> no. No. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so It's unrelated. And what Douglas describes here as like really becoming half free or becoming really a free a freeman in spirit, mm -hmm. though a slave in form, is kind of a violent resistance to mm -hmm. the yeah. system of oppression. Yeah. So there's a part of me that that as I read this text and I read these I read these multiple explanations of freedom, I you know it seems to me like if Douglas were being really honest with himself, he would be a dang revolutionary. Well, perhaps. I don't disagree. But I guess in his defense, I think that people's journeys to that place mm. could start in different ways. And that, like, in the place that they're journeying to, you mean is that, that not afraid to not die? Not afraid to die. And like the the idea that you're just like, I'm gonna stand up, like I'm just gonna exert my manly independence. Not that it has to be manly, but right in the in the words of Douglas, right? That like, mm -hmm. this sort of like, I'm just no longer gonna be a servile coward, right? Trembling mm -hmm. under mm -hmm. whatever this brother worm of dust is. But mm -hmm. so, I mean. Yes, like the fact that he wasn't more revolutionary, I, I don't, I can't speak to that sort of path. But I think that, I mean, when I think about some of these, like, so I know that maybe the most about revolutionaries in um, Central, in Central mm -hmm. America. And I mean, one of the ways that some of those people ended up becoming inspired and active in politics was through learning to read. Right. It was in these liberation theology groups and they were reading the Bible and like it was like these like Bible studies and like those Bible studies where they came and talked about their experiences. I mean, is that the only thing? No. I mean, sure. Other stories, people were activated by like their entire villages being like raised to the ground by repressive forces. And like, you know, it's not the only thing. But I guess I think I've like read enough accounts of this where I've seen paths that looked like this full-on like response to repression and I just needed to have agency in the face of like mm -hmm. this just like crushing repression I've seen stories where you know like recruitment clearly mattered right mm -hmm. sort of like people's own networks drew them into these mm -hmm. but I've also seen these like base like the Christian based communities were like big and sort of Latin American revolutionary stuff and that was like it was reading it was Bible study it was like yeah. You know, and so I guess that I think that there are the ways to that radical path of like being like, I just have to act now is like, you know, whatever. I guess like that is to say Someone that come to you could draw ways, right? that line in, in a, he may himself feel that line to be tighter connected mm -hmm. than, you know. Than someone else might. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like. It's not, I mean, in this sense, it's like someone could learn to read and not have at all this response. You know what right. I mean? Like, like yeah. the, I could imagine this, I guess, like that it doesn't seem like this is a, yeah, like the, there's like one mechanism that gets us to this kind of. But it place. also, in your in your account of it, it I, I also remain somewhat confused about, about, knowledge as a mechanism itself right like right because it was also like community and but i mean it is it was like a lot of this stuff i mean we've been reading all this stuff in my sure. social movements class about like the analysis part and sure. the, like coming to understand your situation in a particular way it spurs to action not necessarily revolutionary action but action so it's something i mean i don't know it is something i know i was being 
sort of artificially skeptical of it all week, and I will probably continue to sure. perform this kind of skepticism uh, of of this particular pathway. But I, I mean, I do want to acknowledge that there is something. There is something to it, right? There is something to it, which the that's wrong or that it knowledge no. Is th- bad. There is something to this idea. There is there are too many stories where people are like, once I had the language to describe my situation, I knew that I couldn't withstand it any longer. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I knew that I could not tolerate. Once I had this, once it clicked for me, like I had to leave. Right. Right. Like. Right. You could hear this in so many. There are so many stories of. Large and small oppressions. Right, yeah, people getting divorced or whatever. Yeah. Through the same, like, yeah. Yeah, that, like, once I had this way of describing my situation. Yeah, I read these, like. I, I had to get out of it. Feminist analyses, and then I had to leave, like. That's the story yeah. of the 70s and the 80s, right? Yeah. And that's the, that's the peak, peak divorce period, right? <laughs> peak divorce. No, but, no, that's too early. No, peak divorce is 70s through the 90s. 70s? That seems... When I, my parents mm-hmm. divorced in the 80s, there were not other people whose parents were divorced. Huge spike from like 68 to 70. Hmm. Relatively flat up through the 90s and then a massive fall off in the mid-90s. Right, yeah. I mean, I felt like it was increasing over this period of time from the... It's a pretty... It's a huge... It's surprising. It's a huge spike. I'll I would have put it all in the 80s. I'll, sh- I'll show you after. I believe you. I believe you. I just feel like I don't know who those people that were divorcing. They certainly didn't live in North Carolina. <laughs> I'm sure they that they tracked. The, I'm sure that all those. This is party. getting us pretty far from Douglas, but I'm pretty sure that most of this stuff probably tracks with economic centers of power yeah, and, and places where right. women cities were entering and the women's, women's Probably your stronger, major cities. Stronger. Starting in New York, you know. Women's activism. <laughs> Anyway. But but it does, I mean, so to, the, the reason we were talking about this is the way in which having a particular analysis and a particular knowledge of a, of a given situation that is intolerable does sometimes seem to click stuff. It seems like magic to me, right? Like, I don't... Well, but if it's also, like, the path actually was more direct, I think, than you have just outlined. Because it's like he learns to read, and because he learns to read, he's now... What was the first? He's now an intractable. He's like a sullen, intractable animal who is sent to be broken. So, mm-hmm. like, is it actually a direct line that he's sent to this abusive jerk? I mean, not like that they're not all abusive jerks, but this particularly, he like it's is harsh. sent to this like bad situation to break him from his learning to read. So, I mean, it's like actually sure. is like. It makes you know, him unfit like, to be a slave, just as Master Hugh Auld was worried, and it, and he remained unfit to be a slave. Yeah. And so I mean, I think that like it's like to in his path, like this. I mean, and it was partly enforced by. I mean, this is what's kind of interesting about this is like that is partly created by the repressive institutions, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about like the purges of intellectuals all over the place, mm-hmm. right? I mean, in a certain regard, you've just created the. Like, you have made this thing mm-hmm. be. Well, and as know. he says, your next one takes us to two sixty, right? Yeah. So correct, as yeah. as he says in the in in the kind of wrap up of his story with Covey, is he's like, you know, I think that the reason that Covey never fought me again, and I think that the reason that um that I basically bested him and that he backed down and and never lifted a finger against me again is that he was afraid his reputation was built on being the slave breaker. Right. And right. if he had to admit that a sixteen year old had whooped him. Right, right. His reputation would be shattered. Right. And his reputation was economically valuable to him because he right. took these difficult slaves at right. a great at a great price. Right. Like he didn't right. own these slaves, but he would hire them right. for cheap. And right. you know Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a fun. Which part is another of that story. it's another element of the way that the particular construction of the slave system makes it more like 
traps Covey in a corner. Right. Right. In right. the same way that Ald right. is kind of trapped in a corner. Maybe it was really just the roots, though. I mean, <laughs> the part that's really great is, and I think it's too bad that the 1855 one, my memory, I, I didn't read the 1845 one for this particular this particular semester, so it's been a while since I read it. But my memory of it is that the roots are given a little more given a little more power in the 1845 uh -huh. manuscript. <laughs> and then he like puts it down. And then he tones it down a little <laughs> bit in, for the 1855 no. version. Um, I mean, whatever. I wouldn't, I yeah, wouldn't, I mean. I wouldn't discount those roots, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. I guess all, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I feel a little bit sometimes like the the construction of the story about the reading, I'm not like, seems about just as magical as roots to me. <laughs> I mean, all of it, life, right? We're superstitious, symbolic, uh, you know. It's true. It's true. We lot. are, we do, we Still do holds need a lot of power. We even. do need symbols. You know. All right. Page 260. Once master of my own time, I felt sure that I could make, so he's free. No, 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 no. This is an interesting piece of the sociology of slavery. I'm glad you asked. Um, so Douglas at this point is back in Baltimore with Hugh Ald. He has okay. been sort of, now he's grown up. He's now a man full grown, and he's he's uh, with Master Hugh and Thomas Ald. Okay. And a practice that was mm, somewhat common in the period was that slaves could work for wages and pass their wages to their excuse master. Me, pass their wages to their master. Crazy. And so yeah. I mean, this is the thing that I haven't really it's not the place to get into it in this particular semester, but in this particular course. Um but I I think it's just slavery was a really I just think we it's hard for us to imagine what slavery was like. You know what I mean? Sure. And this is sort of one, I think, one element of the texture of the weirdness of slavery, right? That like, and and Douglas could have also been working alongside free black workers right. in the dockyards right. of Baltimore, right? right? So there are black and white workers working on the wharves of Baltimore. Some are slaves, right. some so are weird. free laborers. All are being paid a prevailing wage. Slaves were not paid less because they were slaves. Right, because it went to the master. It, it all went to the them. master, right? Right. And so some masters allowed slaves to negotiate for their own work, That's right? Allow them basically to be workers and could negotiate with the whole the whole arrangement of of pay, of of how much was passed along. As Douglas writes, some slaves purchased their own freedom. Through savings that they made come in, in their this, own uh, in their own wages. In this quote, so yeah. once master of my own time, I felt sure that I could make over and above my obligation to him a dollar or two every week. Some slaves had made enough in this way to purchase their freedom. There you go. It is a sharp spur to industry, and some of the most enterprising colored men in Baltimore hire themselves in this way. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, now you've just given somebody a, I mean, if you talk about that problem of, that we started out with of like, well, you've got to repress because why would anyone work mm -hmm. given this situation if you weren't doing it out of fear? Mm -hmm. And then here you've just changed the sort of... The whole dynamic. The whole dynamic, yeah. I think it, I think it goes to show just also a very, um, that city slaves... And slavery in the city versus slavery mm -hmm. in the country, rural slavery versus urban slavery, are just radically different experiences. Right, right. And that that the development, and, and I think this is partly why um, sociologists like W. E. B. Du Bois, I mean, who I meant to, I meant to say Du Bois this time, <laughs> yes. um, you observed. Should, shouldn't be teaching them simultaneously. Know, man, apparently. Tough. Um, observed the ways that you know um black americans were able to develop a more sophisticated economy in the cities right in part because they had like not only were cities just like larger economies and stuff but there's this like massive head start that urban right, slaves right, right. had at right. actually just having jobs jobs yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. and and i i mean the the difference 
is just it's just really unbelievable. Right? I mean, in a way, we could say that is true. Probably more broadly speaking, and then in within this institute, the institution of slavery. We could say which more broadly that the cities are really different yes. than rural areas. Oh yes. Even like small cities compared to rural areas, mm -hmm. right? Where you would just have very different structures of. Well, the difference between life over here in Syracuse, a small city, yeah, versus yeah. life over yeah. in Clinton, which is yeah, even now in a different. modern era when we're not like some of us aren't still like making our own clothes from flax or whatever right. you guys were, you know, yeah, yeah. like, which it's, I mean, at this time maybe not quite that, but still, right? Where you're he's thinking there in 1838, about, right? I mean, the, the like the jobs in the household that are still being done where households in rural areas are doing, which is part of why the slave life looks so different, I mm -hmm. would imagine, right? Is that like just so much more is happening in the home mm -hmm. or on the, you know, which is the farm right. versus the urban areas where I imagine so much more is happening through commerce. and Right, right. And even the world of Covey's, Covey's farm, which is really self-producing, Versus Colonel Lloyd's plantations, which is producing export crops. Right. Right. I mean, right so right. It, they were just fundamentally folded into every aspect of the economy. It's not as though it's not as though slavery and the slave economy was like a separate system. Right. That it was only plantations. Right. Which is, I think that. I think it's the image that many of us that's have. That's what in our I was going to say. I think that's like the predominant image is like we imagine like a white Southern lady with like a you know a julep. And right, right, sitting on a wide know, veranda. On a wide veranda, yeah. Which is I just declare. like, yeah, yeah. I feel like that. That's like the picture when it's like, yeah, gone with the wind, shit. Yeah, absolutely. Where it's you know, a, I mean, it's not only the South. B, it's a, you know, right that there's like, you know, far more. Yeah, slavery was a was a was implicated in in all of the levels of the economy. Right. right? It was it was it was part of an economy, not a separate economy. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's where Douglas is, is in the 1830s. And this is, um, that you will be unsurprised to learn that this particular scheme that he hatches to hire himself out as a, as a wage earner is, um, part of his pathway to freedom. Sure. Okay. As he sort of alludes to. All right. Page 271. Jake told me all about. Oh, his... sorry. I need to tell you about his freedom. He gets his freedom. <laughs> he runs away. Okay. Okay. Um, there's a long footnote. You should make sure to read it if you haven't read it. This is I'm talking to the students, not you, Heather. Um, yes, I didn't assume I was supposed to read it. Where he, where David Blight, our editor, describes his journey to freedom. But basically, what happens is that Douglas disguises himself, hops on a train. Uh, out of Baltimore to Wilmington, Delaware, and then makes his way to New York City. Mm -hmm. Classic story, right? <laughs> um, and he's in New York City as a free black man, and he is sort of wandering the streets of lower Manhattan. He's got just enough money in his pocket to buy a few loaves of bread, and low en which, by the way, is exactly how Benjamin Franklin starts his autobiography. I'll have you know. Crazy. That's awesome. In Philadelphia, in f for Franklin's autobiography, it's a classic, classic part of Franklin's autobiography, repeated here in Douglas's autobiography. Mm -hmm. um, he bumps into an old acquaintance, because lots of people ran away. He bumps into an old acquaintance, Jake. Okay. Jake told me all about his circumstances and how narrowly he escaped being taken back to slavery. Though the city was now full of Southerners returning from the springs, that the black people in New York were not to be trusted, that there were hired men on the lookout for fugitives from slavery, and who, for a few dollars, would betray me into the hands of slave catchers, that I must trust no man with my secret, that I must not think of going either on the wharves to work or to a boarding house to board, and worse still, the same Jake told me it was not in his power to help me. He seemed, even while cautioning me, to be fearing lest, after all, I might be a party to a second attempt to recapture mm -hmm, him. Mm -hmm. Very sad. I, I feel yeah, like that is a depressing. very sad... Yeah. Uh, the pathos in that scene, imagining these two old acquaintances and that, you know, you can kind of imagine in your head of like, 
the one kind of like backing away. Right. Like, like maybe do, you don't trust anyone up here, you know, right? right. I mean, it's very, it, it, it's, a, it's a way, so one of the parts of, one of the parts of this section of Douglas's um, autobiography is to paint a picture of the loneliness of life of the recently escaped slaves. Right. right? Well, I the, mean, it's like they're not out of the thumb exactly. of the repression. I mean, it's like not at all, right? It's, that they're still very much um, under the thumb of the repression. Yeah. I mean, yeah. This is not. Yeah. Douglas begins his career as an abolitionist and an abolitionist orator before he feels really safe from. So, but were there slaves also in New York at this time? Or there's never slaves? I don't know enough actually about where. So I don't remember when slavery is outlawed in New York State. Um, Because initially it's 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 everywhere. I think it's actually 1807. But I I don't know. I could look it up real quick. Um, It's not that important. But what we basically have in our, as we like get in this period where the North and the South, is that we have had slavery basically all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then certain states have banned it at the state level. Correct. 1817, not 1807. 1817, you said? Yeah. And now we're in what? You said 1830? It's 1838, and all, all slaves were emancipated in 1827 in New York State. Okay, so, so we're 10 years past there actually being slaves. Full emancipation of slaves in New York. And... But now you have some of the people are, the black people are free, and some are escape fugitives. Correct. But New York has not banned people where there's like allowed, slave catchers are allowed to operate. So this is a good question. Um Slave catchers are allowed to operate, and it's fully institutionalized through a special set of federal, like law enforcement practices by eighteen or around eighteen fifty with the Fugitive Slave Act, which is the Jerry Rescue stuff. Is the Jerry Rescue here in Syracuse is totally wrapped up in the in right. the um, in the Fugitive Slave Act, right? So there was an informal practice of of um, I mean. Informal's not correct here. There was a, a, a professional practice, but it was an extra legal practice of okay. removing fugitive slaves, returning them to their owners, bounty hunters coming, right? Right. Um, in 1850, 12 years after Douglas gets his freedom, right, 12 years after his escape, mm-hmm. uh, the Fugitive Slave Act is passed, and there is actually a series of federal courts and federal magistrates that are set up to essentially administer legally this previously de facto kind of bounty hunter system. So it legalizes, formalizes. It formalizes and incorporates the slave catching practice into the state. The state. Okay. Dark moment, right? Yeah. Right? And so so when you think about all of this stuff, when you think about a present moment of black American people, activists and allies looking at the courts and looking at law enforcement right. and making an analysis of law enforcement, they are making a very historically grounded right. analysis of law enforcement, right. Right? right? I mean, this was like right. in 1850, it was like they doubled down on. Yeah. Right, doubled down on they formalized an informal practice and incorporated it into the state. Well, and it's also that part of like whatever my southern pride's gonna come out here for a moment here, or like whatever southern chip on my shoulder or whatever that sort of sense in which it's like You're careful with the southern pride. No, I know in this moment my southern <laughs> pride is a little different. I think. Than, um, I hope so. Or you know, I mean, <laughs> speaking of divorce. Speaking of divorce. No, we've talked about this a lot. Um, but this sense of, like, that the... That the North's got clean hands? The North has clean hands. I think that's, like, the part, not the... I mean, whatever, the South has a boatload of problems. But then, like, I feel like, you know, I'm up here and with all these 
Confederate flags and like whatever, and then like as though that somehow the North was like clean in this. When I have some people that are like, I would never go to the South. It's like racist. Not this was not mm-hmm. being said by people of color, but of old whites. Where I'm like, what is wrong with you? Um, anyway, whatever. That's neither here nor there. But yeah, but the sort of fact that the like we sort of institutionalize this practice of yes sending slaves back is like well, it was it was contested. As you as you know right, from right, the our rescue own, and whatever yeah. from our own sort of New York State history that yeah. New York State I mean right. to its credit right and I mean right. I think this is this is definitely credit where credit is due many and not just New York State but many states felt that the Fugitive Slave Act was like an insane incursion an insane right. an insane uh, sort of um, abridgment of states states rights, rights right where it's right like a state's and so rights. yeah yeah so it's not as though it was uncontested right. But right. yes, you're absolutely right that it was it was it was a full incorporate. It was like, in a sense, it was fully um, nationalizing the problem of slavery. Right. right, right. So like you're locally banning it, but then you're like, then sort of allowing the system mm-hmm. anyway. So I guess that all, to me, all is that the, just to say that like seems like all around in this moment where everybody's to blame here. I mean, the abolitionists, not every individual, but, like, sort mm-hmm. of broadly the country. I mean... Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Know. I think that we ended up on this chip because of the plantation, the picture of slavery as just yes. this plantation. So I guess, like, why I ended up on this rant was, like, that it's not slavery just... Slavery was also f- yeah. slave catchers. And, like, this whole thing, it's not just the gone with the wind, you know, whatever. That was this whole immense, like, you know... Was a seamless garment of yeah, of oppression. oppression and oppression. Yeah, absolutely. Expropriation of labor yeah. and wealth. Dehumanization of yes. people. Like I mean, just you know. Anyway, all right. Two seventy six. Regarding slavery as the basis of wealth, I fancied the two people could become very wealthy without slavery. So this is Douglas. This is funny. I'm glad we're talking about this because this is Douglas. He's talking about how he comes north. And he's like, I thought all these people were going to be poor up here because they don't have slaves. <laughs> so, like, I thought, I can't, he's, like, looking around, he's kind of like, uh, but not everyone's poor, but, like, they don't have <laughs> slaves. I don't, doesn't make any sense. So funny. Yeah, go ahead, That's read That's amazing. I love that. Um, a free white man holding no slaves in the country, I had known to be the most ignorant and poverty-stricken of men and the laughingstock even of the slaves themselves. Called generally by them in derision, poor white trash. Yeah, yeah, man. This is a it's a fun part. I I think this is a really fun part of the text. Is sort of you've got this. Um, right, he's also a little country mouse comes to yeah, town. Yeah, there's a kind like, of innocence you know, abroad, like, like, like uh, there's a <laughs> there's a very innocence abroad kind of uh, moment to it where he's like, and it's crazy. <laughs> they build ships cheaper than With we labor. did in Baltimore. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. They use oxen which are a lot cheaper than slaves, and they do it faster. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a very, it's a very fun moment of the text yeah. to me. And, yeah. and you sort of, you imagine sort of walking around in kind of wide-eyed wonderment at the whole yeah. tableau before him, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's even better that it's like New York City, right? Like the classic right. place right. where right. Your all mind lost is blown. souls yeah, are the, drawn, you know? The country I mean? mice's like it's a, minds are blown. It's a, it's, I like it as a particular yeah. kind of, New York story. That's awesome. A little welcome to New York. All right, so 291. Though I had reached a free state and had attained a position for public usefulness, what's he doing? He's now an abolition speaker with the William Lloyd Garrison, the Garrisonians. Okay. Uh, I was still tormented with the liability of losing my liberty. Yes, yes. Did he ever, like... Yeah, get this. So they purchased him from the Alds. So he had these British benefactors in the Garrisonian network. Bought him. Who bought him from the Alds. Crazy. Yeah, I was wondering if that was, like, he... And that's how he then eventually became... It was not long after that that he breaks with the Garrisonians and and, um, hooks up with Garrett Smith. Okay. And Garrett Smith. I mean, this is the part that I guess I find so interesting is because Garrett Smith was a, like, the people he hooked up with were revolutionaries. After the Garrisonians were revolutionaries, you know? Yeah. And so it's a little surprising to me that 
that there is still this kind of like, if we could just teach them to read. <laughs> and what, at what point does the Fugitive Slave Act is in place until the Civil War? I think so. Uh, I'd have to look it up. Yeah. I mean, I can look it up for you. Well, no, I mean, I was it's just... But we've been going for a little while. Yeah, um, no, we can stop. No, it's it's fascinating. But I mean, I yeah, I guess that this is all to say on this part that it's like, well, clearly learning to read isn't going to solve this giant systemic problem. So like, this mm -hmm. is a silly, like, if you're like, learn to read and then systemic change, this is like ludicrous. But also then, well, you the know, like I said earlier, I still stand by my, like that line between being activated and having like profound experiences with ideas and, mm -hmm. you know, like analysis and reading and like this kind of stuff is like, doesn't, that part seems not crazy to me, even if like, you know. And I think this is something I said, I said it on, I said it in a, on a message board on Basecamp that, you know, people could look at if you want to. Um, you're all subscribed to it, so you get notifications about it, you know. Um, is that I think there's also, in a more conceptual sense, there are some interesting questions as we plow ahead into the 19th century. There are these interesting questions about the links between psychological freedom and political freedom. Uh -huh. And that this, we're about to read William James, so like... Mm -hmm who was a psychologist, um, this question, and the 20th century is highly psycholo psychological right. as well. Um, but I think it's nice that Douglas sort of puts this, puts this on the, on the table for us. Right. Um, we should wrap this one and, um, you and me should, I, I should go to bed. Um, right. good talk. I'll see you on Wednesday and or Friday. <laughs>